Is it possible to live a longer quality of life after a heart disease diagnosis? We are the patients who have resolved to become healthier, both physically and mentally. From managing symptoms to managing side effects, from managing medication to managing finances. We share the challenges and the triumphs. Discover what it really means to survive and thrive with a heart condition. This is Living with Heart Disease, a Heart of a Giant production. Here is our host, Samane Uba. Today we have Wendy. I was I met on November uh, 2017. That was about a year, almost a year after my uh, my implant, my Elbad implant. Um, so we'll probably start a little bit about you know talking about Wendy's journey. Uh, was Wendy getting to know her? I met Wendy. Uh, I think via Facebook. We were both ask, I think actively commenting uh, on on the post, um, and I remember you were asking about uh, if it was okay on that particular page to ask for um, speakers and you know organizing your conference. Right. And then uh, and, and then uh, and then we connected, and then eventually it turns out that we have the same doctor at the Brigham. Right, um, and then you. Put us together in person, I think, right? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, um, I think we're bound to connect, but when he's very active in the in the patient education space, um, she's one of the, uh, I think, most, I would say, effective or efficient or productive advocates I've met. Um, and also she's um, very modest about it, obviously. <laughs> Uh, so, but she, she runs conferences, uh, I'll let her get into the details, but she runs conferences, she's involved with a lot of research, including the genetic research, um, within the, especially within the cardiomyopathy, uh, space, which is, um, mostly the, um, obviously the disease of the heart muscle. Wendy, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great. Thanks. So, uh, to get us started, who's Wendy? <laughs> Who's Wendy? <laughs> so let me see. I don't want to say I'm a patient first because that's definitely don't not not how I identify. I I am not my condition. I have a heart condition, um, and I think that's something you know you definitely need to distinguish uh, with people, especially when they're newly diagnosed. I think people tend to become their condition. So I am a 54 year old mother of two who lives in Plymouth, Massachusetts. I um, had I was diagnosed when I was 24 with my heart condition, which is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, and started getting really active. I think in the outreach and education area um, around 2012, uh, you know, 2011, 2012. Um, it all started when my cardiologist at the Brigham would ask me to help her teach classes at Harvard and MIT to um, pre-med students who are learning about the genetics of um, different medical conditions. And uh, she would teach about the whole genetic side, and then she'd have me come in, and the students would ask me questions to kind of understand the patient journey. Um, and after a few years of doing that, I just essentially went into her and said, I need to do more. This, you know, talking once a year to a group of students is terrific, but um, I know that there's more that needs to be done, and I want to be a part of getting of getting that done. So, um, that's kind of what started uh, my journey into really working more directly with patients, with hospitals, with biopharmaceutical companies, and trying to make sure that um, 
the patient voice was front and center in everything that they did. Um, so research projects weren't just looking at the end result, um, but they were really taking into consideration the impact that that study might have on patients, um, how to put the, to a better study together to get more patients involved, um, how to uh, better teach patients about these conditions. Um, and then um, helping t patients to understand the results of studies, you know, because mm -hmm. we participate in the study, uh, we sign all the documents, we read all the disclosures, and then we never find out what happens. And mm -hmm. I think that was something that was really lacking for a long time. So, yeah, so I've tried to kind of get my hands into all aspects of that. Well, thanks so much. And that's like a full, um, I guess, valuation of the, um, the medical fail. And, and, and I think before we dwell into that, I wanted to um, uh, hear a little bit about the condition in your family. As you, as you explained, you have it, um, uh, you have this condition. Uh, and then we also know that it's a, it's a hereditary condition. Um, mm -hmm. So w when did that start? How do we find out and who did it start with? Yeah, so um, I do. I have some older pictures of family that I can share or that, that you have, but I've been able to go back seven generations actually in my family to, um, to find people with this condition. So there's so, okay, so that picture is my grandfather. This is, um, so these are the last living relatives that I know had the condition. But like I said, it went back. Um, this is, it would only be two generations back. It's, it's gone back um, five more beyond that. Um, so it's, it's been in the family for a long time. Um, this is my grandfather, Glenn, and his four boys. Um, the boy in the upper left-hand corner died about Gosh, let me see. He was probably 13 in this picture. He died um, about eight or nine months after this picture was taken of sudden cardiac arrest. And then the next two in the picture, the gentleman or the young man in the upper right-hand corner and the one in the lower left-hand corner um, died about eight years after this within a couple of months of each other, also of sudden cardiac arrest. Yeah, so my mother, who is in another one of those older pictures, um, she has the, had the condition as well. These are all, the, oh, there we go. There's mom and Jerry. Um, so that's her brother, Jerry. He is the one that, that was in that upper right-hand corner of the picture that we just saw. And he died um, when I was two, I think. Um, and then my mom had the condition. She was transplanted. Um, she received a heart transplant in 2003 and then passed away in 2009 of complications of that heart transplant. Um, she, um, she was the one that I think really got me interested in research and wanting to do something and not just um, take the condition lying down, I guess you could say, but, you know, have some control over it. And, uh, and so she was the one that really started focusing in on science um, she would sometimes speak at these, the Harvard classes. And then when it became difficult for her to do so, um, she, I started taking over this picture. So these two gentlemen, um, the one on the right, um, Keith, he had a heart transplant. Um, uh, let me see. He, he had his heart transplant almost 24 years ago. Um, he passed away last summer. Um, again, also of complications um, from that, but he lived 24 years after, after transplant. Um, yeah. We've had seven heart transplants in my family. So um, a, a lot of people have been, we've had, you know, seven people received 14 hearts <laughs> in total or, you know, so um, 
Yeah, so it's a long family history of it. it it's uh, and and obviously I look at you and I see advocacy and I see um, uh, like patient education, but I think there's an element of um, caretaker or caregiver. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. And 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 then you care, you know, you caregiver, but you're also a patient and you're also a parent. Uh, that's a lot of roles. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's you know, both of my kids also have the same heart condition, um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, my son was diagnosed when he was 15, and my daughter was actually diagnosed at birth. So yeah, so I have been, um, you know, a caretaker certainly. Um, through my mom's transplant, you know, I was, I did a lot to help um, with that when she was in the hospital, it didn't go well. So um, she was in hospital for a long time. And then with my kids. Um, But I think um, being able to be an advocate and being able to really um, try to have as much of an impact outside of the condition as I can uh, really helps inside the condition and really helps in terms of me staying focused and mem- my mental health. I mean, if I can, mm-hmm. if I can do something, um, then it makes me, you know, it makes me much, much happier. If I feel like everything is out of my control and I'm just sitting here, you know, then um, it makes it much, it makes it harder to deal with. So I think staying active and learning and teaching um, and connecting with people is really what, you know, what helps me in my day-to-day wearing all these yeah. different hats. So I, I guess I just had to, I thought of a joke and I was like, I guess meeting good folks like myself probably been helpful, but. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's for you, Meme. That's for you. That's for you. <laughs> um, but this is, this is, um, yeah, I think we have a lot to unpackage, but I think uh, the first question a lot of folks might have is, um, what are some of the, like, talk, thinking about the day-to-day living or thinking about the, the daily life, what, what are some of the symptoms that, that, you know, that, to look, that you notice or that, you know, you notice at the onset and then some of the symptoms that are, you are managing, I guess, um, yeah, regularly? Sure. sure. Yeah, my, I mean, my heart condition itself, so in me, it, HCM can be very different in different people. So even within a family, like um, my condition is very, is fairly mild. I'm, I guess, middle of the road with it. My son has almost, has no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, my daughter has had extreme symptoms and has had a, a, you know, a much more difficult journey. So really, even within one family, it can, it can vary dramatically. Um, and they're not quite sure why. I mean, for me, I have, um, I have good days and bad days, you know, some days where I just will struggle to push a grocery cart across a parking lot, you know, not over snow, just a flat parking lot with no groceries in it on the way into the store. But then there are other days that um, I'm on the treadmill and I'm working out for 30 minutes, you know, at a, at a quick pace. So it really, it really depends. Um, you really have to learn to listen to your body. And, um, and know that if you do something one day that is extreme, the next day, you probably will pay the price. Um, If you're willing to do that, then, you know, then fine. So I I have to plan things around that. So if I know I'm going to have a really, really crazy day one day, then the next day is going to be a down day for me. Um, But also the majority of the symptoms that I have had through the years um, are being managed well with medication. So I'm on a lot of different medication. Um, and, um, but, but it's all so far it's working, you know, it's working fairly well. Um, those doses have to be adjusted sometimes, you know, sometimes I I go down in the doses, sometimes I'm going up in others. Um, sometimes coming off of a drug is what's going to help, you know, at that particular time. 
HCM plays by no rules whatsoever. So you really have to just be prepared to, um, to, to, you know, be going at that moving target at all times yeah. and knowing, knowing that it's going to always be moving. So, so it kind of requires like a continuous um, uh, therapy or continuous approach to therapy. Um, and what is that like? Like how, how we, um, what are the medicines you take and what are they supposed to kind of help you with? Is it blood pressure med? Is yeah. It well, diabetic? so it's not, they're not, they actually, so some of them actually were designed for blood pressure, but then there, there haven't been any new medications for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in over 50 years. So uh -oh. everything somebody with my condition is on is on, it was a drug that was designed for something else that then they discovered it might help with this. So for instance, one medication I'm on helps my heart squeeze more effectively. Another medication I'm on helps it relax more effectively because with HCM, that's typically where the problem is. Your heart can't relax as much. It, sque it squeezes really hard, um, but then it can't relax. So um, I'm on other medications that um, help with the elasticity of the heart. You know, you don't want the heart to become too stiff, which is something that also happens with HCM. Um, I'm on a diuretic because it can cause um, it can cause symptoms of heart failure. You know, where you're starting to um, to hold into hold hold fluids, which is going to you know obviously be a problem down the line. So um, yeah, so I'm on a lot of different things for a lot of different things. Um, but as I said, so far, things seem to be working, you know, seem to be working well for me. And maybe you can, we can compare it to, uh, you know, the rest of the family, but, uh, what are some of the, uh, checkups and how often you have to go to the hospital? What are some of those, um, how do you, how do you monitor it, you know, beyond you being right. mindful of your own body? Right. Things like that? What yeah. So, so I have a, I mean, I have oh, oh, just once a year is when I go in to see my cardiologist and kind of have the full workup. Um, so that's an echo and EKG, um, sometimes an exercise um, stress test, which would be on um, a bike typically, um, sometimes with O2 uptake, which is where they put a mask on your face and, and you have to get all your breath through that mask, essentially. So you have to keep your mouth open the whole time while you're riding. It's absolutely miserable, but uh, you've had them, I know, so they're awful. Um, but um, but then I also I have a, a defibrillator, an ICD pacemaker um, implant, and so that I I do I go in every six months for an in person appointment, and then every six months is an automatic through a, a portal that's next to my bed. That's just a little device that automatically sends in um, a message for what the last three months looked like. So those two appointments, the in person and the um, virtual, I guess appointments. Um, end up having me seen every three months. So you have in person every six and on the opposite, you know, three months later to the six months out, you have the other appointments where it's just the machine yeah. just through telemetry. So, so far it's so. been, um, I guess, you know, there might have been some, we can maybe have some scary moments, but so far it's been mostly under control. Yeah. It's been mostly under control for me. I mean, um, I have had some times when my symptoms have become, you know, more prominent. Um, but, um, but overall, I think my journey with HCM has been um, certainly easier than a lot of people that have this condition, you know, but then at the same time, probably more difficult than others. So. And, and maybe take us through when was like the, uh, one of the last, last, um, tough period or tough episode that you had? Yeah. Well, so this summer I was actually having some really difficult um, times with it where in, um, 
Oh, I would say in uh, April and May, I was doing great. I was able to exercise. I was doing this one particular video that was a, um, a more intense cardio workout. Um, but then you can, you know, you could adjust it to whatever you needed. But I would keep my heart rate up for the full 30 minutes um, and be, you know, really tired afterwards. Um, then in a very short amount of time, I found that not only could I not do the video at all, I couldn't even get to the second exercise in the video. Um, I was unable to walk in the grocery store. I couldn't pull, push the grocery cart, whether it was empty or whether it was full, I was having, you know, um, difficulty climbing the stairs. And so it, it really, in a very, very short amount of time, had some really um, tricky situations. I just didn't know what was going on. So, so I went in and saw my physician at that point and she took me, she lowered my dose of one medication and then she actually completely took me off of another medication. Um, so around the same time I ended up, actually this would be at the end of the summer when we sort of started putting all the things together. Um, and I ended up with pneumonia and she said, well, while you're kind of home and while you're in bed, let's take you off some of those medications. Cause they're going to make you feel like crap anyway, when you go off of them. So let's just, if you're already in bed, you know, let's do it now. Um, and it's made a tremendous difference. So, um, lowering, um, you know, one and go, I actually, I went off of two. So I went off of one that was just, um, I was on primarily for um, arrhythmias, so um, it was called Norpace, and so I, I came off of that one completely, and then another one, uh, Losartan, I came off of completely, and then I went on a lower dose of another drug called Atenolol, which is a calcium channel blocker, yeah. and, um, and I'm feeling a lot better a lot better with the lower doses. So I think, but I had been on all of those medications for such a long time that my blood pressure had gotten to the point where my normal blood pressure would be about 86 over 50. And um, when I would exercise, it wouldn't go up. And that's, yeah. that was the problem is that I needed, I needed my heart to be allowed to do what it wanted to do mm. when I needed, you know, more um, blood more, flow. Uh, more yeah. And so, um, but I had been on those medications for 20 years, yeah. you know, so, so my body was just at the point, I think, where it said, you know what, you need to, you need to go off of some of these things yeah, <laughs> and let the heart do what it needs to do. So some conditioning happening and maybe some, some restoration over the years. Um, yeah. You mentioned arrhythmia, which is, um, I guess, irregular heartbeats, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and did your pacemaker or your AICD ever kick in? Like, did you get uh, any of those episodes? No. So that's the, that's kind of the crazy thing. So when I first got my my first um, ICD, I got twenty five years ago, I guess. Um, so I got it really quite um, quickly after I was first diagnosed, and there were there was some discussion of whether or not I needed one. So um, my doctor at the time I was living in Colorado, he didn't think I needed one, but because there had been so many instances of sudden death in my family, and I was having episodes of fainting, the doctors here in Boston said, no, we want her to have one. Yeah. So I, the doctors in Boston had followed my family for generations. So I knew them, I trusted them. So I decided to get it. But um, in the first year, it paced my heart once at night, yeah. when my heart rate went down below 40. Um, but it's never fired. It's never done anything else. Um, and I have had five battery changes at this point. So I'm on my fifth my fifth yeah. device. Well, um, I've had mine, and uh, obviously, the more it kicks in, the more it, the faster it goes. Also, the technology is improving. Right. But I had mine 
let's say four and a half years ago, uh, July, July 2000, June 2016. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a, my mother-in-law, so we're going to laugh, but it was a very, uh, stressful moment because, um, uh, I had, I was just flown in from Senegal and my symptoms came back. So I was already sick again. Uh, but I didn't think, I thought it was the same thing I've been through. So I was, I thought it would be all right. But then we mm-hmm. went through. But the first thing that the hospital did is like, well, we want to put you on the AICD. As soon as they figured out that my, condi- my condition was, gen- um, was congenital. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, um, we kind of isolated back and forth between about the idea of taking it or not. Um, and, and, and I, I remember Desiree was all the way across the world in, in Zanzibar with, you know, my, <laughs> I'm trying to sugar that up now, but like my lovely mother-in-law and the kids. And so I, at one point I said no. And then, and then later I said, I said yes. Uh, but I mean, long story short, uh, we decided to go ahead with it and we'll put in the device Thursday evening. Uh, mm-hmm. so Friday, Friday afternoon, I went back home and it turns out that in between, well, we learned that in between, during that time, I was having some irregular heartbeat, but I was having VTAC, mm-hmm. uh, ventricular tachycardia, and by accident, we found it out. But anyway, the device we put in on a Thursday, Friday, I go home, and then um, I come back for a follow-up the week after, and it turns out that that Sunday, I had my episode that could have been fatal had I not had uh, AICD in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, that was the only instance that thing kicked in. I mean, I didn't oh. feel it, but that was the only instance. Um, obviously, there was some medication in between beta blockers, you know, controlling the heart rhythm. But it's just some some of those things where it's like so much happening at one time, um, mm-hmm. and then your one wrong move or one right. small move can can change everything. And it also goes to the relationship with the doctors. Obviously, the one you know they will make the best suggestion. Nobody really know what's going to happen. Right. But that relationship was important. I think now we have a bond that is, you know, stronger. They listen to me. I listen to them. Uh, and it seems like you have a very good relationship with your teams, you know, even, you know, going off medicine. And it seems like you talk through a lot of stuff. And and how important is that to to your your care? And also, how do you how do you develop and sustain such a relationship with your medical team? Right. Yeah, I think I mean, having a good rapport and a good feeling about your medical team is so important because you you have to trust them. You can't question everything they're doing. You know, you have to know that they're looking out for your best interests and they're doing everything that they can. And you're not just a patient. You're not just a number on a chart um, to them. And I don't think you always find that necessarily with the first position you see. Um, The first person that I saw for this condition 26 years ago had never um, worked with anybody with the condition. So she opened up her medical book in the appointment and was reading down the symptoms and the things that might happen to me. And she said, oh yeah, so that says sudden death is very common, blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't drive. You should never have, have children. And obviously it wasn't a good fit. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's really important, I think, to find to find somebody that you really, um, that you really trust and you feel that connection with. And then um, and then that relationship gets built over years, you know, over time. And and with something like HCM or DCM or LVNC, you know, the other um, cardiomyopathies, um, you're going to be going back to the doctor. It's not like a one time or two time and you're done sort of thing. You, you have to have that relationship um, and it is going to grow. I think it's important for patients if you get to a point where you're not feeling as though that doctor is working for you anymore, you know, it's time to, to try to find try to find a new one. Luckily, you know, we're in Boston, <laughs> so yeah. we have, you know, we just have the best, the best of the medical. Um, 
there are a lot of places around the country I know that uh, that don't have you know great HCM doctors around um, nearby. Um, I think that's getting better. It's it's a it's a heart disease now that's understood more than it was in the past, and more doctors are putting putting their eyes on it. More cardiologists know about it. Um, the American College of Cardiology just um, received a huge grant uh, to focus just on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So they're going to be doing a lot. Um, with it. And um, so, so I think there are going to be more doctors available who, you know, who do understand the condition and can help. This, this is exciting news. And I, I apologize I come back on that. I just want to add that not only we have the best doctors in Boston, but we have many of them that, um, that are very cool, you know, like yep. you can see by the shoes they wear. So <laughs> for the ties, yeah. The ties, uh, yep. Yep. Likes yep. To, tease, to tease them about the shoes. Yeah. Um, no, I think um, this is um, this is a lot of, I guess, relatable stories, and I think it makes it harder for me to ask some of the questions because I know, you know, we've, we've been here for a long time. I mean, 2017, this is yeah. now. Um, but I think um, one thing I wanted to maybe, you know, uh, segue into it is the, some of the advocacy work, um, and, and especially when, now that you mentioned uh, more investment into this space, uh, we want to, maybe we can start by the highlighting some of the more recent developments, especially in terms of the first potentially first medicine that we might get that is really targeting HCM uh, right. and some of those things. So maybe we can touch on the general news uh, update and then uh, we can we can we'll, 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 you know take it from there. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a there are like I said, there are a lot more eyes on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy right now. There are uh, more small and large biopharmaceutical companies that are looking at expanding and coming up with new drugs um, for um, HCM. They, the doctors, the researchers, um, many of whom we work with, you and I, you know, who are at the Brigham, um, have been able to teach and have learned so much more about the condition. Um, one of the things that I that I work with is is a registry called the Share Registry, which long it stands for the sarcomeric human cardiomyopathy registry and it's really just a database of patient data um, but it's from around the world so it's international so we aren't just looking at hcm patients from one country even or one state it's it's international um and with the the records the data that's in there right now we have uh, over 127 years of, of patient data essentially if you you know if you add it all up and so it's a lot of really good information. And, um, and so not only are the doctors, but the pharmaceutical companies are starting to look at that. And they're realizing that there's a huge unmet need um, mm -hmm. with people with these conditions, with the genetic um, cardiomyopathies. So, um, yeah, so one of the new drugs that is that we hope to hope will be on the market either later this year or first um, part of 2022 is a drug called Mavicampton. And um, that's the first drug that specifically works with um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And right now, the studies, the research that they've done has been primarily on people with what's called obstructed cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where um, uh, hypertrophic or HCM is, is the thickening of the septum. So that's what's happening. So like for me, it's thick at the bottom and the top of my septum is fine. 
Um, but some people that thickening is at the top. And so it impedes the blood that is then leaving that part of the heart, the ventricle to go back up into the atrium. Um, and so um, that's when you're obstructed. That's what's considered to be obstructed. And this medication is actually helping with that. So it's helping not only um, they're hoping that it helps actually shrink that obstruction, mm-hmm. but um, what they have discovered is it helps tremendously in people's ability to exercise in their, um, their, their oxygen saturation rates, um, and overall, it, just how they feel. So they've been able to come down from, say, a heart failure. There are four four phases of heart failure um, in the um, New York. It's NYH something yes, the, the York, <laughs> heart uh, failure. Yeah. yeah so the classification. Yeah. Right, the classification. So you might have someone in um, stage three heart failure who's able to come down to stage two or stage one um, yeah. with this with this drug. So it's really it's really exciting, um, and yeah. And as I said, they're hoping to get that drug on the market, you know, within the next within the next year or you know six months to a year. So. I think that will help a lot of a lot of people. And then there are other pharmaceutical companies. Um, Cytokinetics is another small company out of um, South San Francisco. They're working on a similar drug. Um, yes. The one that came up with Mavicampton, the company was um, Myocardia, although they were recently purchased by Bristol Myers Squibb. So Bristol Myers Squibb now owns the medication. But um, but yeah, there are more eyes on it. More research is being done on it. More pharma is getting into it. Um, and because HCM is hugely, it's, it's not a rare condition. Yeah. No, yes. at, at one point they thought it might be one in 500 people, but that's only the people that have been diagnosed. Yeah. And there are so many people that don't know they have it. You know, you hear of, of athletes all the time who will drop, you know, drop dead on the field. And a lot of the time it's HCM yes. um, and it was undiagnosed. So if you, if you're looking at people who have the genetics for HCM, but have not been diagnosed, it's probably closer to one in 250 to one in 300. Yes. So it's a really very common condition. Yeah, that's, um, and that was the, I think that was the, one of the lessons we learned. Obviously, when it was an athlete uh, dropping or, or falling, was, it, it was very dramatic. And, and, and some of those helped, I think, educate people mm-hmm. about early diagnosis and maybe, um, I, I guess, raise awareness. Um, so we're hoping with time that that will be, uh, you know, we won't have to go through that anymore. Uh, the new medication also, or maybe the advances in that space also, I think, gives me a lot of hope. Uh, mm-hmm. And essentially, hopefully there will be only one or two medicines that you have to take instead of like a, a big cocktail. Of, right. Of right, 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 right. Yeah, that would be you nice. You with side effects and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, uh, I wonder how you manage that. Um, so how... Um, I think I forgot to ask this early on, but now, you know, you, uh, we talk about you as a caregiver, a caretaker, but then who's, what's your support system? Who's your support system? Who's, uh, who takes care of you, uh, uh, when, when you need it? I, I totally forgot to ask. People that. like you, <laughs> you take care of me. No, I thought I, I, was, I, I, was, met... I was, I was good, Mimi. I thought I was a good guy. <laughs> I have, I've met so many just really incredible people in, in my journey with HCM. Um, I, you know, at the beginning, of course, when you're first diagnosed with something, it, it's the shock and it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. But um, I, I really, at this point, I see it as a blessing in so many ways because it's put me in contact with amazing people who um, are just passionate about what they do. And, um, you know, I've been able to connect with a whole bunch of patients that and we meet once a month. In fact, our next meeting is tonight. Um 
And it was, it's, it was quarterly when it was in person and now it's monthly virtual. And, um, you know, so those people are my support system. Um, certainly my family is my support system. Um, you know, my dad dealt with my mom's illness during, you know, their entire marriage, they were married. Um, they would have been celebrating the 50th anniversary, uh, two weeks after she passed away. So, um, so they just missed their 50th anniversary. Um, but you know, so he's obviously a support system, um, and my and my family. I'm I'm the sort of person that I don't I don't share I don't want to burden the people in my life with how I'm feeling from day to day. Um, but I know that there are times when I have to open my mouth and share it with my husband and say, you know what, I can't do what you want me to do because I just don't feel like you know I just can't do it today. Um, so you know, so I let I let myself be supported sometimes yeah but it but sometimes it's a struggle <laughs> i'm not like, always open <laughs> to that was that. your growth your growth opportunity uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just i just had to unmute um meme because i knew you had something to say to that <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's 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 really we want to help but we do understand and respect your need for sort of you know privacy and don't want to be a burden but i think i'll opt for you to be a burden rather than not and I'm speaking to Wendy, not to some other person <laughs> on the panel. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's the ongoing that's struggle. I think we, you know, we're so used to being, um, I don't know, I think it depends on where you come from. I was telling my cousin um, uh, who was going through something, and I was like, please, please ask for help. But this is from experience. Uh, but that was my, you know, and, and I think... For me, it translates everywhere, even at work, you know. Um, so some of those things, I feel like when you get when you get this condition, or just like when you get challenged in life, you know, your worst comes out. You know, your weaknesses, you know, get amplified. Uh, but at the same time, it's also an opportunity to grow. I think um, I've, I've done better over the years, maybe, right? Yes. Uh, the, the yes definitely. Help, the grandkids help. Um, but yeah, this is. Um, I think for me, it's yeah, the support system was really crucial. Um, and I think it helps, um, you know, they help you go, they help you focus, they help you rest, uh, they put you back in your in place sometime, you know, when you, when you really do. And also, um, other patients, seeing other patients also help because sometimes you can just talk between the, you know, uh, above the line. And, and so some of those things have been very, uh, very useful along the way. Right. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think knowledge is always helpful. I, I've always felt that more knowledge is helpful for me understanding my condition, but that goes to the next person too. So it's, it's more helpful to my husband if I let him in and let him know what's going on, because that knowledge then he can use to do something. Um, right. I feel the same way when it comes to my kids. I want them to tell me what's going on. They don't, they have the same, you know, outlook as I do in terms of not wanting to bother people with their conditions. But I want that information because then I can do something. I can be active. So, yeah, so I know the advice I give. I'm not always great at taking it, but it's, <laughs> but I agree. I mean, I think we need to be far more open to, accepting whatever kind of help a person is able to give us so we can't always expect them to give us the exact help we need because they're not us they're not in our heads um, but we need to be able to be open enough that we accept whatever help they're able to give at any time so yeah so that's something that I think I'm getting better at it that's great that's great that's all you can that's all you need to do right right and now I think you mentioned the kids a little bit um, and how is it like to talk to to kids like parenting Somebody with a condition, how do you 
especially when they're getting held and held. Um, uh, yeah, you know. I mean, when when the kids were really little, we really treated every appointment as though this was something that every kid did. You know, we didn't say you're going into a special appointment to see a heart doctor because you have a problem with your heart. It was just something, you know, this is just something we have to do. We have to take care of our bodies. And this is something that the doctor wants to, you to do to take care of your body. So, yeah, so that's kind of the way we treated it um, the whole time. Um, I remember when, um, when the kids were little, when Connor was my son, who's um, going to be 21 this summer, um, 20 in, you know, this coming summer, but he, um, he had to have surgery when he was six, just for a swollen lymph node. So it was nothing heart related at all, but he had to have surgery. So when my daughter was getting ready to have surgery, when she was six, um, for it was hers was going to be open heart surgery. So we actually had my son, who was eight at the time, help talk to her about surgery. So we wow. we brought him into the conversation and we essentially said, you know, so Sissy's going to have to have an operation. And you remember how you felt when you woke up and, you know, and it was kind of uncomfortable. And then the doctors gave you a popsicle. And this is kind of how you felt. And this is what you had to do going into the hospital before the surgery and kind of reminding him of the steps. And so when we sat down with him, he was like, it's really not bad. And it's so cool because you get a popsicle. <laughs> you know, so, but, but I think it, you know, it, it kind of, it, it, it explained it in a, in a level at a level that she kind of could understand a little bit better. I mean, you know, we've always, um, we, we were very careful to never lie. So if, if they had a question about it, you know, we would tell the absolute truth. This is, this is what's going on. This is, you know, what the doctors think or whatever. Um, so any question was answered, but we tried to kind of bring them into that conversation at the same time. So, um, so that we, so it wasn't just us imparting information or telling them something. Um, they were able to kind of take what they needed from it and um, learn from it and then talk to each other about it. And they have just an amazing uh, relationship, the two of them, even though they're two and a half years apart and a boy and a girl, um, they're absolutely best friends. Um, and yeah. they have been since day one. So, um, I think that's been a huge, huge help for the yeah. two of them with this. Big brothers, big brothers again. Uh, yeah. Wendy, uh, Wendy, excuse me. I have a quick question. Yeah. When or how did you know that your son had a um, a situation with his heart? How yeah. did you find out? So uh, we had both of my children, we had their cord blood tested right at birth. So mm -hmm. we knew that they had the genetic predisposition for the condition at birth. Um, with my son, he was, he was followed. They did several echoes immediately, you know, when he was very, very young, they didn't see anything. Um, but then he was followed because he had the gene. They, they mm -hmm. saw him at children's hospital every year. And then during okay. one of those appointments when he was 15 is when they finally did see the thickening. Um, okay. That's typically when it shows up in boys. It's when they go through that, that burst of, you know, their mm -hmm. muscle, they get bigger because your heart's a muscle. So as mm -hmm. all your other muscles are getting bigger, you know, at the end or in the middle of puberty, that's generally when it's going to hit as well um, for mm -hmm. a teen. Um, with my daughter, we knew that she had the actual condition before we knew she had the genetics because the genetic tests take a few months, but she had an echo when she was just 24 hours old and they saw the thickening in her at that point. Okay. So it was just a, yeah, a matter of being followed at the, at the physician, at the, cardiologist's office at Children's and them picking it up at the different times. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. We got a question about um, diet. Um, is there anything, um, yeah, anything particular you have to look out for and some of the limitations? 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely, I eat uh, low salt, you know, I, I, I will take the salt that's in whatever, you know, if I'm making tomato sauce or something like that, whatever salt is actually in the can, you know, that you can't get rid of. Um, yes. I, but I don't generally add a lot of additional salt. So my husband complains about that all the time because he is a, he loves salt. Um, so he's always, you know, pouring tons of it on everything I make, but, um, but so, yeah, so I do, um, eat for the most part, eat, try to eat as low salt as I can. And then I drink a lot of water. I mean, I go through glasses and glasses of water a day. Um, and that's something that's really important. You know, you have to stay hydrated with these conditions. Yeah, um, yeah. Your heart works a lot better if you are hydrated. Um, yeah. And if I get dehydrated, that's when I typically will have more arrhythmias and more problems. Yeah. Um, so beyond that, though, I don't really have any other dietary restrictions or dietary, you know, those are the two yeah. primary yeah. yeah. And, and the next question I got was um uh, was about sleep. Um I'm I'm probably just going to be quiet at that moment but uh <laughs> they wanted to know what's the impact on sleep. Yeah, so I don't think my HCM necessarily has an impact on sleep. It can cause snoring so you can end up with um sleep apnea. Yes. Um, HCM and sleep apnea do sometimes go together. Um, and so that can obviously be very, very disruptive if you have that problem um, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I, I think my husband tells me sometimes I snore, but, <laughs> but I don't have, I don't have apnea. Um, so he doesn't, you know, tell me I sound like I'm struggling to, for a breath in the night or anything like that. So, um, but if you have sleep apnea and it hasn't been looked at, Mm -hmm. you should have it looked at even from a cardiology perspective because it's not necessarily just something with your nose or your throat. It could yeah. be something with your heart. With your heart, yeah. That's, yeah. that's very important to know. And I think um, the, other, the, other point, um, two, the other two points I wanted to check is uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, sometimes you have good days, sometimes you have bad days. Um, so this, you know, and, and I think having a, a chronic condition, a long-term journey, um, there's gotta be a mental side of it or maybe a spiritual side. So how do you, how are you managing that? Like in my case, I see a therapist regularly, like once a month, at least, uh, I'm, uh, I went for a depressive period. So those, so, you know, those can vary, but what's been your journey and how do you manage that? Yeah. I mean, the things that I typically, that I enjoy, you know, my kind of go-to relaxation, um, is typically going to be reading or cooking. You know, I love to do both. Um, if I spend a, if I could spend three or four days, literally where from morning to night, all I'm doing is cooking something and then having my family enjoy it. You know, yeah. that, that to me is just, I, I love, I absolutely love that. Um, and obviously in a good book. Um, but the other side of it for me that really um, impacts my overall mental being is um, being able to give back. And so, you know, I, I have a uh, HCM support group that I run that I started here in Boston um, and it's growing. And now we have people from California that call into it. We have people from Philadelphia that call into it. So, you know, it was just a very small regional group. Um, and so we have, yeah, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and then and then some West coast and, and some Philly. Um, yeah. But so that is really important to me. I really, you know, that gives me a lot in terms of my mental health and then working with this, you know, I'm, anytime I'm able to lend my voice, um, mm -hmm. whether it's serving on a patient advisory board or, um, you know, hosting one of these conferences or running a conference, there are a lot of work, but they recharge my battery. Like, you know, uh, just like nothing else can. So those are, those are things that I really, they help me look outside myself, 
you know, and I think that's important when you have something like this, you typically look very, very much inward. And it's really important to be able to look outside yourself. Yeah. So this is a conference. I think this was the one was this. Oh, this was Duke. So this was one I did a couple of years ago at at, um, with Duke University. Um, And then I have others that the one that Booba that you helped out in Boston you know, but I've done eight of these conferences now around the country. Um, and they so, are... Tell us a little bit about them. What, are, what, are, what What's the conference? What's about? What, what yeah, so it's 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 focused. Um, it's just for patients. We do typically get a lot of physicians that will come to the, come to the conferences, but they're not like for um, credits. You know, they have their educational credits. Um, so they're really tailored to teaching patients about cardiomyopathy. Um, typically, the conferences focus on just the two primary cardiomyopathies, which is hypertrophic and dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, but then sometimes they'll kind of touch on some of the other um, less less frequently undiagnosed cardiomyopathies as well. Um, and it's a whole day event. It starts at nine in the morning, usually ends around 3.30. Um, we have plenary sessions in the morning where we'll have five or six different speakers, um, typically a patient speaker as well or a patient panel. And then in the afternoons, we do breakout sessions where um, we'll have uh, breakout sessions on heart anatomy. I think one picture you have of me hold, actually holding a heart, which was in one of these sessions, which was yeah. just... Um, so, yeah, so we have breakout sessions that are um, small group sessions. So it's it's 15 or so people sitting around in a circle, um, really asking more specific questions or learning more about something very specific. So those might be education, or I mean, um, exercise in the heart. It might be on the anatomy of the heart and um, what a hypertrophic and a dilated heart look like. Um, It might be on the genetics of the condition. It might be on support, you know, and finding support. Uh, We typically will have a breakout session just for the... um, husbands and wives and the unaffected or the undiagnosed person. I I don't want to say unaffected because the whole family is affected by these conditions, but for the undiagnosed person, we'll have a session just for them, you know, so that they can also meet other people and find the support they need. We'll actually have a pathologist bring in um, hearts and they, um, some of them, like one of them, I remember at one session actually had the LVAD attached to it, um, which was just amazing to see it from the inside. Um, And then you'll see, and, and people, yeah, put on the gloves and pass them around and you find a few squeamish people in these who don't want to, you know, (laughs) don't want to go. So for this particular group, I always make sure that I let them know during the main session during this, you know, smaller session, you will see real hearts. So if you are squeamish, you know, you might want to choose a different session to go to. Um, but it's amazing how people just get right in there and pick them up. And and that particular breakout session is typically the most popular one we offer. Um, so it's, you know, standing room only um, half the time. These meetings, what do you call them? What's the name of it? How do? Oh, yeah. So they're they're called Affairs of the Heart, uh, Living with, and then it's either Inherited Cardiomyopathy or Living with Hypertrophic and Dilated Cardiomyopathy or something along those lines. But they they always have the Affairs of the Heart at the beginning of them. So um, just last month, I did my first actual virtual conference with the people at Stanford Medical out in Palo Alto. And um, that was really exciting. So it, it happened on a Tuesday evening where these other events, that are all day are usually a Saturday. So that makes it a little trickier, you know, but obviously we don't, I don't think too many people are going to tune into their computer on a Saturday, yeah. uh, especially since everyone is living on Zoom and their computers these days. 
Um, so we had the event start at 6.30 and it went until about 8.30 at night. And we were able to offer breakout sessions um, at the end of it. And we only offered four, but still we were able to do that. And then we had, um, you know, plenary speakers and you were there to, to be our patient speaker, which was wonderful. Um, so, yeah, so I'm hoping to do some more of those in the next few months. Um, you know, so I reached out to um, University of Michigan today about that. And then I'm hoping to do one with a team in Houston. And, um, yeah. as well but right now obviously they have other things on their mind so I, I like I like the, the the some of the presentation the special one the directed to the patient but mm-hmm. I remember the one uh, uh, the first one I attended there was um, uh, I had a big revelation about exercising and, and heart disease in, in well you know cardiomyopathy because traditionally or back uh, you know initially people would tell you don't exercise don't right. do, do this but then, um, uh, you know, there, there was a presentation specifically about that and how to how to go about it. Uh, I also know that, you know, you mentioned a few times that you exercise, uh, you try to exercise as often as you can. Uh, but I, I know it's probably a question when it comes to the kids, uh, the teenagers also going to exercise. So what are some of the thinking uh, or some of the, where are we with with, the, with doing exercise with the right. cardiomyopathy at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So just recently in the past um two or three years, they've done some really intense studies on exercise and cardiomyopathy. Um, one was done by a, a group of physicians from the University of, of Michigan. Um, and it was a it was a study where they actually took people and they they had um, three different groups, one group that didn't exercise at all, one group that they put on um, a pretty intense exercise program, and one group that they put on kind of a moderate exercise program. And the two groups that were put on exercise programs did tremendously better by the end of the of the program. They were they felt better. Um, their heart function was better. You know, it really did have a very positive impact. Um, where, yeah, for years, because there has been a thought that exercise could induce these um, fatal arrhythmias because yeah. they were happening at times on the field or something like that. So it's not actually the exercise that's causing the problem. It's sometimes it's the stopping, it's the ending of that exercise, or that your heart's trying to then compensate for what you just did, um, or it's just a it's just a um, a, a, a quirk, you know, a, a bad heartbeat that happens just just that one time. Yeah. Um, but overall, if you can exercise in a safe manner, um, and obviously any exercise program you need, you get into, you want to check with your doctor beforehand. You don't just want to say, oh, the doctor says I can exercise now, I'm going to go run a marathon. You know, it's all, it's always going to be little steps and, and um, getting yourself kind of to the, to the place. So when I first started to exercise um, a few years ago, I actually kind of put myself on that study that the team at U- University of Michigan oh. did. So I read the whole study and then I started slow. And then, you know, like two weeks into it, I would increase what I was doing, which was the same thing that they were doing in the study. Um, and I felt a lot better. Um, both of my kids are intensely into exercise. So they, um, yeah, w- when the gyms all closed down, it was, you know, it was just the the worst thing that could have happened to the two yeah. of them. But um so, but they, they do so, you know, um, consciously they, and they know what they need to do and they know what are what they're allowed to do. And, you know, we've run the exercise programs, um, by their physicians. Um, my son is, he is into weightlifting, which typically is counterindicative, um, to something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So something that when your heart is already bigger and thicker than it's supposed to be, you don't necessarily want to do an exercise. It's making your muscles bigger and thicker than they are supposed to. 
be. Um, but he, he does it in a very thoughtful manner and, um, has cleared those, you know, um, his exercise regimen with his physician. Um, my daughter has always been into horseback riding and that's just been a tremendous, you know, help with her. Um, and, but now she also, you know, she does that, but then she also just does the treadmill and, and, you know, weights and her own exercise as well. Um, yeah. and that definitely has an impact on mental health. It yes, absolutely I, has a, has I think that's, that's crucial. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. um, I was, yeah, I just, I just didn't, my, my, I remember my therapist at the time told me, well, um, even if you look at elder people, the ones that exercise more regularly tend to live longer. Um, so she says, you know, she suggested that, and this was when I was first diagnosed. Um, uh, but obviously you go through, you know, you have a shock, you have a diagnosis that come and then. Uh, usually, uh, the first thing for the, from some of the doctors, they will tell you to slow down or not do too much. And I feel like not exercising at that particular moment is, is really, um, it's really, uh, can be dangerous because at the same time, you have the mental challenge to deal with. Right. And so you don't get any lift and, and, you know, any other opportunity to process some of these feelings. So maybe, yeah, exercising could be recommended, but very, like you say, in a safe manner and within certain limits. So, yeah. Well, and I think too, with exercise is, um, you know, we, we all know that people that don't exercise at all and, you know, we, whether we call them couch potatoes or what, they are unhealthier. They are less healthy than people that do exercise in many ways. So if exercise helps your heart, even if you have a heart condition, you don't want to add on top of that heart condition, other things like that exercise can help with. So exercise is going to help with your cholesterol and, you know, and so many other things, um, your blood pressure. And, and so um, you, you don't want to make your heart less healthy by, yeah. you know, becoming a couch potato. And I think for a long time, that's what was happening to a lot of people who are diagnosed with these conditions is they yeah. were becoming unhealthier faster because they were told stop, stop moving, you know, kind Somebody, of stop living, uh, just, yeah. just, you know, sit back and relax. Um, I remember my doctor, one of the doctors, I mean, I saw him once uh, or twice, but he was trying to convince me that, and I was 20, I was 20, maybe eight or something. He was trying to convince me uh, uh, that I have the heart. So I should picture this way. This was his picture. It's like, you should picture your heart um, that you have the heart of a 60 years old. So you cannot be going as fast. And, you know, 60 years old people, I know a few of them that are very, very young. That do 10,000 steps or 11,000 steps a day. Yep. So to me, I was just like, that doesn't add up. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, getting the right exercise was important. So I, I talked, to, I reached out to personal trainers. And then I remember one of the things they will say is you can do weight, but, um, try to do uh, more reps with lighter weight or things mm-hmm. like that. So some of those adjustments, which was important in our case, you know, I was, you know, was just trying to bulk up anyway. I just wanted to maintain the market value you know, of, that I have is so this it doesn't look elsewhere. But um but yeah I think that was you know important to know um to go forward. I have a few more questions that you know probably the best part we're gonna start you know getting into um <laughs> but but I, I mean I think one thing I'd be liking about um what you do and how you do it is this important of uh, really meaning and purpose that you you doing you're adding to your um uh to your journey. Obviously mm-hmm. you know uh you, you, you say you want to make, you know, it's important that you give back. It's important that you do this. But um, it seems like if you had a choice, this is all you'll be doing anyway. Right. Um, so yeah. I, I find that very powerful. And I wanted to know how, you know, what drives you 
what, not what drives you, I know what drives you, but what maintains that drive uh, uh, for you in, you know, like what, what makes you, how do you maintain that, that interest? How do you maintain, you know, the challenges, the day to day when you talk to a doctor, you don't get a response or you're trying to get this project going, you get stuff. So how do you, how do you stay motivated? How do you, how do you, yeah, I, well, the people, the people that I meet um, always keep me motivated. And anytime I have, you know, a new question comes up, um, it, it motivates me to, to work more to find the answer for that question. Um, so yeah, so it's, I can't, it's, it's not, it's, it's absolutely hundred percent the people that I meet along the way that, that keep me motivated and keep me wanting to do, you know, what I'm doing. Um, and there's still such a need out there. You know, there's still so many unanswered questions. And if, if I can do anything to help get some of those questions answered, then, you know, then I'm going to do it. I, and one job I had years ago, I remember my boss at one point called me the pit bull. He said, because once you latch on to something, you don't let it go. And, you know, and I'm, I'm all of five, I was like, I'm five, four, you know, and I was like 120 pounds and I will take that moniker, you know, give me that name. I'm, I'm proud to carry it. I, I, so. I was going to be my testi- my testimony. I think like, um, obviously, I'll, I'll say I look up to you, but it's really uh, even with your fire for you know. But it's really amazing because you have. Um, uh, I know it's very hard for, for for anybody to say no to you. I just that's yep. just what I'm not doing, including myself. I'll fight. I'll fight. Uh, and it, I just like um, yeah. I just don't know how you do it, but that's really impressive. And you know, makes I think it motivates other people. And I think hopefully um, it will have more people get involved. Even, even right. cardiologists specialize in this field, right. uh, and obviously it will translate to other things. But yeah, the, the pitbull is a good surname, good nickname, yeah. as, the, as Odile said. Yeah, uh, I think the more people learn about what they are dealing with and any condition that they have, the more they want to become involved in it. And I think if you only know your condition by the symptoms and the name. It's yeah. scary and you're in a dark, you're in a cave, you know, but by learning about it and by letting it out of that cage and, and meeting other people, it, it just, it helps, it, it brings the light into it. And then I think people tend to want to bring more light to it with other people. So if one person can learn about the condition and teach another person about that condition, and then that person learns about it and teach it. I just think it, it grows from there. And it, that's just the standard way. I think things move and education kind of moves in that direction. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you can't be closed off and um, it it's doesn't help you, doesn't help, you know, doesn't help anybody. This is great. I think um, that's important. And, uh, and, and the fact that, you know, sharing the information, you know, makes it, multi- <laughs> helps it multiply and 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 I know oftentimes it probably come back more more richer, you know, yeah, than yeah. than when you put it out there. So at this point, uh, I know a lot of the journey, a lot of the advocacy you've done is also involve a lot of storytelling. How are we capturing the collective story right now? Like in terms of obviously everybody's story is different, but there's a collective uh, narrative that is building, uh, that is developing. So is there anything being done to manage that process? And and how do you see what do you, what are you seeing out there when you, when you, you know when you have that helicopter view? Yeah, yeah. Well, so there have been um, not very um, very long ago uh, an or, an organization called the um, Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association actually worked with um, um, the FDA and put on a program that was just the patient voice. So for a full day, they had patient speakers speaking directly to the FDA about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and um, and that was a tremendous um, you know undertaking um, and 
people were logged in from all over the world, you know, for it. It was originally supposed to be in person. It was supposed to happen last March in person with one group and then people could log in. But people could call in during it and share pieces of their story, depending, you know, they had it kind of broken down so that at, during this one session, the FDA just wanted to hear about um, the drugs you were taking. And during this one session, maybe they just want to hear about exercise. And and so people would were able to call in. And then a huge report went out from that um, that was a published report. So I think um, you have, you know, you have blogs and things like what you were doing. You have the um, the heartfailure.org, um, you know, where you can read blogs and post blogs. Certainly a lot of social media. Uh, Facebook has a lot of groups. And, and um, the website that I manage has stories on it as well. People want to share their stories and they want to find other people who, who have lived those same stories or parts of those same stories. I think that's really important. And I think there are more avenues now to do that. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, I, you're, so, you're so busy and you're so, you're so involved in a lot of things that I actually forgot about this one, uh, at failure.net, which is um, uh, a community that we joined last year. Um, yeah. and then, you got and me into it. I think you started with it and then introduced me. Yeah, no, I had to. I had to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it's a community that um, actually we talked to them yesterday also. But essentially, there's an organization called Health Union, and they've been having smaller group of specific conditions. And, and the latest one, the recent one is heartfailure.net, they call it, where we are, you know, patients come in. Um, uh, now we have, they have care, caregivers are also in there um, that are in the conversation. And then we obviously publish articles and, and share. But there's also a very active, vibrant Facebook group. Um, and yeah, it's been a quite a community that I, I really, I'm, I'm really glad they reached out to me and that we're involved in. And I feel like, yeah, you had a lot of value into it. But it's amazing how you, yeah, you, you've been able to help a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I just, I just put the link uh, into the chat, but I'll also share that on the blog. That's those are good folks. I like, I like what they do with the articles. Um, yeah, they, they, they have, have some blog. great they, articles. Yeah. So yeah. maybe what are some of the articles you? Um, you, you talked about what are some of the things you talked about um, on, on that platform? I've only written one blog for it. Actually, yeah. I, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't done as, as, as many. Um, but you've also done, done some moderating and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I did some moderating on the Facebook group. Um, I think actually, maybe I wrote two blogs. The first blog that I actually did for them was on sudden cardiac arrest. And it yeah. was because oftentimes someone who has a sudden cardiac arrest, it looks like a, as a seizure. And I and my worry was that I didn't want people to see someone having what they thought was a seizure and not right. run and get an ICD or a defibrillator um, because, because the two can mimic each other. So um, uh, sometimes when you have a sudden cardiac arrest, you have what's called agonal breathing um, and your muscles stiffen. Um, so when that happens, it doesn't, I when I remember very clearly, my daughter had, had several. I um, mean, when I was in the ambulance with her, the ambulance person actually said, oh, it looks like she's having a seizure. She must have an undiagnosed seizure disorder. And I said, no, she doesn't. She has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's what's going on. Um, and so my first blog for them was actually specifically about that because I yeah. just... You know, if someone in an ambulance sees it as being a seizure and treats it as a seizure, you know, then uh, you're missing an opportunity where you could save a life. So, um, so that was the first blog I did for them. And honestly, I'm embarrassed to say, but I can't even remember what the second blog was. Uh, it, it's but, okay. I I, I, put, I just put your chat in there, and I know this year yeah. will be a few more. I've been figuring out how to do how to 
pro- be more prolific, I guess, in posting um, more. And uh, yeah, I have all sorts of ideas about what to write about, and then I never sit down to actually write I will, about. Them. I will find a way. One way I've been doing now, uh, I'll find a way to 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 organize it with you. But one way I've been doing is literally just talking to my uh, phone, uh, transcribing mm-hmm. that. And then going back to that and editing and so that's a good idea. It's been forcing me to really um, type it out there. But obviously, you want to you know go through it because because you might end up with too many drafts, which is my, <laughs> my challenge now. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that. I think I think um, there's so many examples, and you touch on a lot of the component education. So imagine if uh, you know somebody's having a seizure. And and then and then uh, uh, sorry, somebody's having a heart attack or a heart a heart episode, and it's being mistaken for a seizure. Uh, and the interesting thing is, people still don't know what uh, what some of those seizures are. And, and right. yeah, so it's a it's there's a, we have a long way to go. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wanted to know in that work, in that journey of educating people, advocating, uh, and then uh, having initiatives, what are some of the uh, challenges that are that you that we think in, um urgent challenge that you think we should address and, and we should be facing yeah uh, well, that we are facing one of the one of the biggest challenges i think is still getting pe- people to be involved in research i think people are still very hesitant to get involved into re- in research trials um, because for so long um, we we were never informed what happened with those trials you yeah. know you give your blood or you give your time or you go in for a day of exercise or this or that and then you never know what com- what becomes of it um and so and i think that has um there's just a lot of distrust of researchers for a lot of reasons. And that's, you know, that's one of them. Um, So I think there has to be transparency in research. Researchers have to talk to patients as they're putting the studies together um, so that they put the best study they can a much better job of educating people about what the research is is seeking to, you know, to um, answer what that particular study and then let them know how it went. You know what happened? Yeah. Did did yeah. did you not find the answer? Did you find the answer you wanted? Um, and because I think the more people are educated about research, the more people understand how it works, the more people are going to get involved, and the faster all of this will work. We'll have more medications. We'll have more doctors that are going to know about it. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of work to get there. Um, this, this is good. I, I think because really um, you know, as a as a person of uh, I was going to say person of color, which I don't usually use the detail, but as a black person, it's, it's, you know, um, that distrust has been there with, you know, with research and with, uh, right. with the uh, medical community. And it's also, um, you know, that translates into the lack of representation, but then right. to your point makes everything less ineffective. Um, so that, yeah, translating, communicating that, um, back and, and then being transparent is, is definitely will be, um, Help, uh, hopefully helpful, and this is maybe a bit of. It might not be the right place, but um, I know you. You know, you've been helping me review the um, the, doc, the concept that we're working on for the community-based um, mm-hmm. health program, and then one big component that we're going to introduce there is uh, um, not just well, research, a public health education, public health, uh, but also a lot of research uh, in terms of data, collecting the data, monitoring the data, make, mm-hmm. helping the data speak to the patient first. And obviously, right. you know, uh, sharing, referring that to the medical world or the doctors or the practitioners um, for their research, but also for their own work. But I think um, hopefully that will be a platform to help us uh, because the one thing I think, uh, and this is leading to my last point, but one thing I, I noticed is that um, in between 
what the main difference between you know where I come from, Mali and Senegal or Africa in general, and here is the um, the approach to to care. Here it's much more private. You know, it, it's like a you know it's, it's private to the point that it's even individualized. Whereas mm-hmm. um, usually at home, what the way we would look at it is is um, it's not just one person. It's like a community or a household at least. Um, so I'm hoping that um, that will change with especially with COVID now because. You know, when we, we, we explain that uh, there's uh, community uh, infections or community infection of, uh, of a virus uh, or communal infection of a virus, it's, it's something that is harder to explain when the culture doesn't necessarily support it. Um, right. But I wanted to maybe hear yeah, your thoughts on that in terms of um, what are some of, uh, if that's, in, that's, that's your own assessment or you agree with that and how, how, how we can maybe address that. Right. No, I think absolutely. I think community, you have to find your community. You have to feel as though you're a part of the community. And, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of start building a community of HCM, you know, with, with what I'm doing. And, and, um, in order to, in order to help the community and the community data, you have to understand how that's going to help you, not just how it's going to help the doctors. Oh, I'm helping, you know, by giving this, I'm helping doctors discover something. No, how is it going to help me specifically in my family? How is it going to help my children? How is it going to help my grandchildren? And that's where the community comes in because the doctors are never going to tell us that, you know, they don't have the time to, to bring us, to create a family for us and to um, teach us how important it is to support each other because that's, if you're supporting each other sooner or later, it's going to come back to you. I mean, you know, it's, that's the way it works. And um, so I think, I think it's, you know, the effort that you're putting forward, I think is so necessary, but it all comes back to teaching people to advocate for themselves, teaching people, um, the importance of that um, and and how that then grows and helps a, make a much stronger community bond because then you're advocating for your neighbor as well. You know, yes. if you're really advocating for yourself, you're advocating for a hundred people that you don't know, you know, yes. at the same time. Yeah. And I know for sure you've definitely been advocating for uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of people. Uh, <laughs> I can only imagine because your events have about 200 people, two hundred people at least. And, you know, you've had eight of those and you've been talking to so many people. So um, yep. and I, I just hope that that impact continues to multiply. And I think we're already seeing results of it, but um, I just had to put it out there. Um, yeah, um, uh, Sean, I think you'll have to speak to this. Um, I probably, um, yeah, you, you say you have an SI, SICD. Sean, this- so he, he has the one in the side. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, a sub, it's called, yeah, it's called a sub Q. Yeah, uh, um, I was the first person in the state of Nevada to get it. Wow! I was uh, one of three hundred in the world to get it when it uh, came out in twenty fourteen with yep. Boston Scientific. Yeah, very lucky. But uh, I was curious to see if anybody else. Yeah, uh, I know a couple people that have them. SCICDs. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I think they're they're far more standard now. It, it, they work really well for a certain a certain subgroup of people. I mean, like for, um, with my situation, I really did need one. Um, I, I did I needed the standard, but with some people, the the SCICD works much better. I think for them. So um, I th- I'm glad that they're being used more than they were before. Yeah, I think there's 79,000 that have been um, implanted since 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sort of the future of right. um, the ICD uh, 
category because it uh, causes less rejection um, right. to the body. And so uh, I had a diagnosed blood clotting disorder and uh, anemia. So my body rejected the original ICD, mm, okay. um, which was uh, yeah very, very destructive. And, mm-hmm. and so it... Um, destroyed the um, IR subclavian and the uh, nominate but uh, yeah the SICD is, is is a very uh, important it's an incredible device but yeah I, w- I was curious to know yeah. that yeah I've worked at some of my conferences we've had Boston Scientific help sponsor and they'll bring you know the traditional ICD and they'll bring um, SICDs as well and they're 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 so small and I mean they're just yeah I wish that one of those would work on me and then when my daughter had to have her um, ICD placed she had to have a traditional as well um, I wish that she had been able to have an SICD you know just because of it would have been a little hidden because she's very very petite framed wise um, but she needed the she needed the standard um, um, ICD as well when she got hers but um, although it was in 2014 so they were pretty new like yeah. you said they were I mean, so pictures of it um uh, in the, in, yeah, I, I, I only see pictures of it, and it was fairly new at the time, but this mm-hmm. was 2016. Carmen made a comment about um, a 22 years old who didn't want, uh, who has one, and he didn't want to mess with his look. <laughs> uh, right, because they're more hidden. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how, uh, you know, how Sean is feeling about the looks, and I'd love to hear more from Carmen about that. My cousin's son got an SICD at UCLA. Um, very good looking guy, uh, six pack, all the works, you know, nice <laughs> chest. Um, and he kids around and says, I didn't want to mess up my, uh, I forget what he calls it. He has a name for it. So I got mine in the side. It seems to me knowing him. And then I had other, uh, cousin from the same family who has three sons that have one of them has an SICD. The other two have a, have a normal one. Uh, they were very young when they got theirs, and I was wondering if they're starting to use those in younger adults rather than older people. You know, like the, I guess we don't care about what our body looks like when you get old. You know, maybe a young person might care about having a lump on their chest or a scar. You know, yeah. they go shirtless or a low-cut dress or whatever. Um, I don't know if they're any better. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, I guess – yeah, uh, I think it. I think it really John depends. John would know because he has one for real. Yeah. yeah, I think it depends on on really what the best device is for that particular person's situation more than the device that's going to be more hidden necessarily. So, I mean, I think if if a person had the choice where the doctor said you could really either go either way and it wouldn't make a difference, then yeah, the person might choose to have something like the SICD as opposed to the one in the chest. Um, but in some situations, I think they still. Um, because the SICD is is, a, is still a newer piece of machinery, essentially, um, the the standard still works better in some situations for some people. Um, my so daughter didn't have the choice; she needed to have the standardist. You know. Sean, how's the how's your look? How's the how did this affect your look? You know, it it, it is uh, it's interesting because I I think I'm one of the few people that have had both the uh, AICD and then the SICD. Um, and, uh, as Wendy's saying, and with, with everyone else, it was a, uh, uh, I was one of the very first few to be documented in, in that state. 
you know, I lived with the AICD um, and I was a triathlete um, before. And so right when I first got it, you know, my body was much different. The AICD was certainly um, uncomfortable. I mean, it was, it was in the chest, you know, so it, it, uh, it looked like a pack of cigarettes coming out of your, you know, your, your left side. So wearing a t-shirt or something thinner was always um, noticeable. Uh, and then the AI, the SICD for me also was a, a much harder challenge, even though that it's on the side, which attaches to the rib cage. Um, it's a, it's a, in, in some cases, as Wendy said, it can be smaller, but it's was actually, it's been bigger for me just because of the pocket size and that it also, my body has rejection issues. And so the sub Q runs through the body, which is more of an L shape from the left, the left rib cage that runs to the center of your sternum and runs up to um, the base of um, right below your, your, your throat where there's a, there's a double shock potential. And it is the most powerful device ever put into a body. So I never had the uh, AIC fire, the ICD, but the, the 20 times that this, the SICD has gone off has definitely been a very, very, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an experience that is unlike anything else because it's about two and a half times the power since it is subcutaneous. So it has to go through more bone muscle, you know, to, to reach there. Only about 127 doctors are authorized between California and Nevada to actually perform this type of surgery. So as Wendy was saying to the more physicians and the cardiac community is more apt with the ICD since most of those doctors have been trained on it. Um, not as many have been, uh, on the SICD. And while this is the traditional implant picture, um, there's been a few doctors who have, or the, um, ability to implant that under the, um, trapezius or under muscle so that it doesn't so stick out. It, it is quite large on my left side. If I lift up my arm, you know, it, it's kind of like a baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about two and a half times larger than my ICD just because the uh, second implant in, the, in there has, has caused so much infection. Mm-hmm. And so it swelled bigger and it's holding more fluid. But, um, you know, I, I would say both, both are, are tough to deal with just because, you know, I, I've had uh, 26. Uh, heart and heart related surgeries. And uh, I also have the collapsing of the left side of my vascular. So there's pre-mounted stent systems. And so all of that kind of adds a little bit more of a problem, you know, when there's so much scar tissue and things, but uh, you know, the technology is getting better and like, uh, you know, Wendy and Luba, you know, with the LVADs and with the ICDs, this, this is really great. Uh, technology. I always try to tell people it, it don't question your your doctor. If you're on this path, you know, you get it because all of mine would have been um fatal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um have you have you named your ICD? 
So it's, it's I have a lot of, a lot of that. friends that have named theirs like I, Sparky you know, or, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I do. So all of them, all of them had a pet name, you know, uh, some of, some of my friends, uh, had named it, you know, first for me, like, you know, what is that thing? And, and, and so, uh, for me, I called it my Amlid, which was my life, my life saving device. So it's more of an ML, you know, uh, yep. SD. Um, yep. Like, yep. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, <laughs> this is my hero. Um, right. So it's kind of the hero tag, um, but it, it it does. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, I'm, I, I joke with my doctors and and the and my my medical teams about it. You know, yep. like who? Are we seeing me today? Are we seeing my device today? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Some of them only talk to one one part. You know, they, they interrogate the device and you know, sit down. And mm-hmm. This is amazing, Sean. I think we have to, yeah, you have to come back and tell us more about that. So I'm, I'm definitely making a note. And if if if, if I can't, can't convince you, I'll, I'll get Wendy to ask you to, to come share that. Oh, no, I, I would love it. Hey, I'm I'm just honored to be a part of the group here and look and watching Booba and Wendy and and uh, so many uh, you know great people out there, the advocates, and then trying to help patients. It's, it's, I'm, I'm on the same page as Wendy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to help save lives, and uh, even though right now things are really um, rough uh, with my my medical journey, um, I'm 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 hoping to come out the other side mm-hmm. yeah yeah we will definitely it means a lot for me to to have you here and then um you've been on all the calls and um i owe you a phone call we, we're definitely gonna be you know um making sure that this community thrives we're coming close to the time and i really wanted to thank you Wendy, for uh for this chat and i think you know it's the beginning of of many conversations mm-hmm. um uh it's, it's probably becoming a cliche but Heart patients have so much to say, and, and many of them are cool people. So there's going to be a part two. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we definitely have to plan that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of let you have the closing words, uh, let you have the last calls, last words. Uh, but one 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 thing I probably would like you to touch on is yeah, how do we how do we support this education and advocacy or research in general? Mm-hmm. But yeah, you you let us know what what you want us to part with. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I really appreciate you having me on today and, and giving me the voice uh, to share to share my voice. I think it's really important that we just continue to advocate for ourselves. We continue to ask the doctors the tough questions. Um, don't, uh, you know, if you're unhappy with an answer that they give you, fight for the right answer and continue to talk to them and to, and, um, to educate yourself, you know, through those, through what the doctors are telling you um, and, and then find, you know, other sources to educate yourself out there. There are a lot of good sources. Uh, don't go on and just Google how long will I live with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or something like that. <laughs> cause, <laughs> cause Dr. Google is, is very bad at those sorts of things. But I think if you want to find, uh, you know, real resources out there and ask real questions, teach yourself, learn more, um, ask, meet people, and then connect with those people, and then stay connected with those people, and and start building your community, because then we're all taking care of each other. Thank you so much. This is the words that we take care of each other. I do want to thank everyone for joining, and we're gonna do this again. Uh, Wendy, all the best to the family. Um, yes, I haven't seen too. them in a while, but I know they're even more grown than last time we saw them. 
Yeah. Um, I think when I put a yeah goodbye picture of the um, you and your lovely family, and thank you so much, everyone. Yeah, thank thank you. you, everybody. You guys take care. We are reminded that we are all connected through our experiences of friends, family, and community. We thank our guests for your generosity of heart, looking beyond your sorrows to share your journeys and inspire others. And thank you for listening to this episode. We hope it did your heart good. Visit us online for more resources at heartofagiant.org.